great week uh, in the Lord, whether that was uh, some exciting stuff that happened for you or maybe some difficult things. May the Lord even use that to refine you in the process of making you more and more like his son, Jesus. But if you're a guest with us today, I want to ask you if you wouldn't mind, uh, in your worship program, there's a little card we call a connection card. If you wouldn't mind taking that out and filling that out. If you take it out of the first-time guest kiosk, we've got a gift for you today. I believe today it's a Starbucks gift card that we want to give you. And then we're also going to make a donation to someone else because you turned that in, a ministry that we partner with, Women at Risk International, that rescues people out of human trafficking. So you fill that card out, you can actually have an impact on someone else's life. So please do that for us. And then everybody, as you came in, hopefully you saw there's these little cards that were in your cup holders or sitting on your seat. If you're in uh, one of these white seats here, nobody in the white seats, but if you see these cards right here, um, they're an invitation to an outdoor service we have next week. Now listen, that's an invitation for you. I'm inviting you right now. Okay, so take this. You can use this for a neighbor or a friend or somebody else you want to invite to church. On the back it's got our regular service times. But notice it says that next week is not meeting at a regular service time. We're going to be outside right between Target here and the movie theater and the parking lot. I think it's out there. Yeah, it's out that way. And uh, we're going to be, as long as it doesn't rain. If it rains, we're going to come back inside. But outside at 10 o'clock. So if you come at 1030, you'll be really late for the service. If you normally attend the 9 o'clock service and you're here at 10.30 today, um, you'll be really early if you come to that one. So at 10 o'clock, our whole church family is going to gather together, so it'll be a neat service. You'll probably bump into people and go, I didn't know you went to church here. What in the world? Because uh, we're having two services. And so we get to meet some people. It's going to be a special time for us. It's going to be a family-friendly service. I'm going to preach shorter than normal. Let me tell you something. I put a guarantee on that. Here's the guarantee. My wife and I have four children, and uh, I will not be helping her with them while I'm preaching. And so if I would like a happy life, <laughs> I will preach shorter than I normally do. Uh, so that is the guarantee, and I care about you and your family as well. And so bring your kids. Kids are welcome. We're going to be doing baptisms. Uh, if you haven't been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the time. Uh, we're going to do them together. It's going to be a special time as our whole family. If you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior and you want to get baptized, let me tell you, you've got an important step before that. And that you need a life-giving relationship with Jesus, not just about getting in some, some water. Now, some of you uh, maybe were baptized when you were little kids, uh, babies, you know, five years old, whatever the story was, and you didn't know Jesus is your Savior. Um, and that's great. Your parents probably were doing what the church told them to do. Totally understand that. I want to talk about this a little bit more next week. But what we see is the New Testament pattern in the Scripture is when someone places their faith in Jesus, then they get baptized, which is letting everybody know I'm a follower of Jesus. And so if you're ready for that step, here's what you do today. Just mark on your connection card, the same card I mentioned for our guests, that I'm interested in being baptized. Drop it in the offering boxes on your way out, and someone will contact you this week. And uh, maybe next week you get baptized. So I'd love for you to do that. Um, then also, this is a big weekend. We're having Discovering Southbridge uh, today. After church, I'm going to be able, if you're a guest, I'd love to have lunch with you. I think we've got about six or so slots left. And if you've got kids, we've got a spot for them. We do have child care for that. And then this Friday night, we're having the kickoff for Southbridge Serves. Southbridge Serves is a weekend where we try to tangibly demonstrate the love of Jesus in our city. We give a plethora of opportunities. I'll share some of them with you. And the message of just different ways that you can serve. If you're introverted, we've got some behind-the-scenes type stuff. If you're extroverted, we've got some things where you can walk right up to someone and say, what do you think the spiritual needs are in our city? And so it doesn't matter which end of the spectrum your personality ends, we've got opportunities for you. There's a table out in the lobby that you can go sign up at after the service. You can also sign up online. And Friday night, we're going to kick off with some worship time, some prayer time. I'm going to share some words at that just to encourage encourage us and equip us to send us out and try and demonstrate the love of Jesus to this city. So what we're going to do today is we're going to continue in the scriptures. If you have a Bible, I invite you to grab it. Uh, iPad, phone, whatever you decide to use. Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to be. And I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Eventually, Lord willing, we're going to make it through verse 20. But as you're turning there to Acts chapter 14, I'm just going to start talking to you about a desire that we all have. Each one of us has a desire in our life to make a difference. We want our lives to count. Some people would say we want to change the world. We want to make a difference in some way. 
Some people will call those world changers. But the reality is what happens for many people's lives is it doesn't really matter that you existed. I mean, you're born. I'm not saying you're a bad person. You just kind of hung out for a while, and then you died. And it didn't really matter that you were here. And a lot of people have a fear that that would be true of their lives, and the reality is it will be true in many people's lives. So what is it that makes someone a world changer? And if I were going to ask you to just think about in your mind, and maybe some names will pop in your head, who are the greatest world changers throughout human history? Obviously, Jesus would be at the top of the list, whether you're a Christian or not. He'd be at the top of the list. Who are some other ones? What are some other names that pop into your mind? Maybe uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Maybe Martin Luther, if you think of the Reformation. Uh, Americans, maybe we think of some presidents, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Maybe you think a little bit more global, think of Nelson Mandela. Uh, Maybe you think of uh, someone else who pops into your head, Joan of Arc. Maybe there's all kinds of names that probably go through your mind if I ask you to consider this question. Well, think of all the names that perhaps popped in your head as you were just listening to me list a few names. I bet you all of them were famous people. And so, do you have to be famous to be a world changer? And, and let me ask you this. Who is the person that's made the single greatest difference in your life? And maybe it's someone who told you about Jesus. God used that person to not only change your life today, to change your eternity. Maybe it was someone who invested in you relationally. Maybe it was just something that got said one time. Perhaps it was a coach. Maybe it was a teacher. Perhaps it was a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a friend. Perhaps it was your mom. Your dad, somebody in first service yelled out, Mom! You know, I was like, I don't know your mom, but I'm glad that mom did that. Who is it for you? I bet you it was someone who wasn't famous. If you said the names, we wouldn't know the names. For me, when I think about it, I think of a guy who told me about Jesus Christ. He was an attorney who started a Bible study at my public school. Totally transformed not only my life today, but my eternal destiny. God used him in that way. But if I told you his name, you wouldn't know his name. So what is it about these people that God uses them to literally change our worlds? Is that they're obedient to simple commands that we see in Scripture. See, God's given us all this desire to be a world changer. He's given us all this desire to make a difference, that our life would count. But the reality is that many people's lives won't count. They'll waste their lives. And so what is the difference about the people whose lives do count? Well, it's real simple. They actually obey the simple commands that were given in Scripture. Things like, be my witnesses. So we've been doing this series going through the book of Acts that we call Movement. And what we see is there's a small group of people who actually obey these commandments like, be my witnesses. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you know what? Then they obey this. And what we see is they literally turn the world upside down. Acts chapter 17, verse 6. We're going to get to that after Christmas time period. And what ends up happening is that Paul goes into the town with a different guy, Silas, not Barnabas, that we're going to see today. And literally the people start saying, these are the men who turned the world, are turning the world upside down. What are they doing? They're obeying commands. Rather than living out their dreams, rather than doing what they want to do, rather than living the American dream, they actually trust that the God who created them and placed that desire within them is the one who knows how to fulfill that desire. And it happens best by living an obedient life to him. And today we're going to talk about world changers. And I'm going to look at a couple of them. We're going to look at some characteristics of their life. And as you look at their life, I want you to ask yourself the question, is this true of me? Because we all want our lives to count. And so how do we make our lives count? And when we look at these characteristics, hopefully you see them and you're like, amen. Praise God, you're encouraged that this is true about you. And if it's not true about you, I want you just to feel guilty and bad. What is it that needs to change about you? So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 14, we'll start reading in verse 8. We're just going to read verses 8 through 10. This passage of Scripture really breaks down into three different sections, 8 through 10, then 11 through 18, and then 19 and 20. And each one of those sections shows us a characteristic of a world changer. 
And so who are these guys? Well, we've been looking at this throughout the Bible, and we've seen these different men and women that have decided it was a small group that are literally turning the world upside down because they decided to obey what God has for them. But it hasn't always been easy. In Antioch, they get run out of town because they're doing this. In the last town that we looked at last week, Iconium, that people are wanting to kill them. And so while they're being bold, they're still smart. When people are trying to kill them, they leave town. And so they come to this next town, Lystra, and, and Paul's preaching there. Look at it with me as we look at these world changers. It says, in Lystra... There sat a man, crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. And he called out, stand up on your feet. At that moment, the man jumped up and began to walk. And so here we've got this short version of this miracle, uh, verses 8 through 10, and it shows the first characteristic of world changers. And then in verses 11 through 18, what we see is how the crowd responds. And you think that they would automatically turn to God. That's not what happens. But then you see this characteristic in these, the lives of these world changers. And then verses 19 through 20, and you can read it on your own if you want, there's a strange twist to the story that happens at the end. And then we see the next characteristic. The first one we see here in, this, in these verses, verses 8 through 10, is that Paul has a sensitivity to an opportunity that's before him. And what we see that's true of world changers is they have a sensitivity to opportunity. That's true of all world changers. Anybody that God uses to change the world, you see them have the sensitivity to the opportunities that God places before them. But you also see it even in in non-Christian examples, in non-biblical examples. And you can see it even in incredibly negative examples. Everybody around knows what the circumstances are. Everybody can see the situation. But there are certain people that see it differently. They see an opportunity. Take a terrible negative example. Hitler. He knew the opportunity that was before him and did something about that opportunity. At the exact opposite end of the spectrum. Take another situation. Martin Luther King Jr. Everybody knew the circumstances. Everybody knew slavery was happening. Many people believed that it was wrong. There were other African American preachers. Why this guy? See, He had a sensitivity to the opportunity that everybody else didn't have. He saw things in a different way. Business examples. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. Wait a minute, the opportunity was there for every computer company. Everybody understood the need for technology, the opportunity to make things easier. But why, what did they see? They saw something different. And you look at this passage of Scripture. Here we have Paul. He's preaching. Normally Paul's situation when he preaches at a city is he first goes to the synagogue, preaches to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. That was Jesus' pattern in the Gospels. We see it's God's pattern when you look at the story of the Scriptures as a whole. He goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Here he's preaching. He's not in a synagogue. There probably wasn't one in this town. He's probably outside preaching. And there's a crippled man that's there. So which means Paul's probably preaching at the city gate. When we get to verse 11, we're going to see that there's a crowd there. But Luke emphasizes this one man, this crippled man. Go back to verse 8 and notice this crippled man. It says, in Lystra, there sat a man. And remember, Luke's a doctor. He's the guy who writes the book of Acts, Luke. Look at what he says. He said, a crippled man, a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth, and had never walked. So three things. He's emphasizing this here. Three things that essentially say the same thing. Crippled man, lame in his feet, has never walked. Okay, we get it. It was very redundant. You said the same thing three times. He's emphasizing this. It's something everybody would know. This guy didn't have just a backache. and just twist his ankle. Headache didn't just go away when Paul tells him you should feel better. He's never walked in his life. Everybody in this town probably knows this to be true about this guy. He's crippled in his feet. He's sitting there, probably sitting at the city gate. And then verse 9, he tells us something else about this man. He says he listened to Paul as he was speaking. That word listened there is in the imperative tense. What that means is this. 
He's repeatedly listening in the past. It was this man's habit to listen to Paul preach. It probably isn't the first sermon that he's heard Paul preach. He's listened to him multiple times. Then look at what it says next. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had a need? No. Saw that all the things that were listed in verse 8, he's crippling his feet, he'd never walked, he's lame? Nope. Saw that he had faith to be healed. That statement, when I read through that, that grabs my attention. Does that gra- How do you see faith? You ask yourself that question, like, what is, it, what is it that Paul sees here? Because everybody could see the circumstances. Everybody could see verse 8. He's lame in his feet, he's crippled, he hasn't been able to walk his whole life. Everybody can tell there's a need there. But what Paul sees is Paul sees faith. How do you see faith? See, Paul sees an opportunity that's before him because he's got a sensitivity to this opportunity because this is important to him. Faith. You know how you have a sensitivity to things that are important to you? You ever had a situation where you didn't see something before and all of a sudden you start noticing it? Whether it's a product, a circumstance, situation in life that, that some people will have, or what is a, a word that gets said. Once you learn that word, you start hearing it all the time. See, Paul's got a sensitivity to faith. What's he preaching about in all these cities he goes to? Faith. He's pleading with people that they would come to know Jesus Christ. Jesus transformed his life by faith. Maybe this guy, in all the times that he heard Paul preach before, believed the stuff. That's why he had a habit of listening to Paul. He believed in all his messages, but now he's got faith. There's a difference between belief and faith. See, even demons have belief. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Some of you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. There's a difference in believing that fact and placing all of your trust in what Jesus did on the cross. That's the difference between faith and belief. And here he sees there's a difference for this man this time. He has faith. Such an important thing for Paul. He's going to preach, listen, you're saved by grace through what? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. This is incredibly important to Paul. Faith. And that's why he sees faith. Some of you think about things that you notice, things that you see. Husbands. You ever come into the house and your wife says, maybe you're out working or in the yard or doing something, and your wife says, did you notice I got my hair done? <laughs> Let me just tell you something, husbands. If you get asked that question, you're already losing. I'm going to give you a little tip. It'll bail you out, perhaps. You can write, if you don't write anything else down, write this down. Ladies, do not elbow your husbands. You should say something like this if someone ever asks you that question. Baby, your hair looks so good all the time that it'd be hard to notice an improvement. Setting you up. That's free. Okay, you just write, write that down. I'm pausing. Write it down. And then what will happen for some guys is that they get the credit card bill or whatever, and they notice how much it costs for their wife to get their hair done. And so then the next time, honey, did you get your hair done? Because now all of a sudden they're noticing something that's important to them: the budget. And, and so they see this. And see, Paul, he notices faith because faith is important to him. And so you have opportunities all around you all the time. Your coworkers, your friends, your next door neighbors, your children, your parents, classmates. There are people in your life continually that God's giving you an opportunity to be a difference maker, a world changer. Do you see, do you have a sensitivity to the opportunities? Do you see what's going on around you? Do so you have different eyes when you see them through the focus of our mission that we have, which is to be his witnesses. And we're living our lives surrendered, poured out for Jesus Christ. See, Jesus was the master of this. 
There's a situation in John chapter 4. Oftentimes we talk about this woman at the well that happens in John chapter 4. And Jesus has a conversation with the woman at the well. There's another conversation that happens in that passage that oftentimes we don't talk much about. The disciples come. Towards the end of that, that talk he has with this woman, disciples come up and they've brought lunch. And so they've got you know value meals or whatever it is they bought off the dollar menu and they show up and they're trying to show Jesus. Probably fish sticks then and bread. And so he brings it to Jesus and, and they're like, Jesus, do you want some food? He says, well, I have food you know nothing about. Paul says to Thomas, you know, does he, somebody give him some nuggets? Like, what happened here? And Jesus says, um, my food is to do the will of my Father. In other words, what sustains me is doing the very thing that God sent me here to do. And so they're confused still. And Jesus starts to talk to them, and he gives them a, a metaphor, analogy of farming, which is interesting because of the time of year that it is. It's not harvest time. And also, these guys aren't farmers. They're fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. They've got diverse backgrounds, but they're not farmers. And he says to them, you say four months until the harvest. I tell you, the harvest is plentiful. It's ripe. And you didn't even work for it. And what most people believe that's happening is the Samaritans are now coming up that hill where they're sitting on top by that well because they want to meet the guy who just talked to this woman at the well. And so he's saying, you see all these people? They're not just dirty Samaritans. They're not just an inconvenience to your lunch. You see, these people, they're the mission. These are people that are hungry for God. Are you sensitive to the opportunity? That's what he's saying to his disciples. He's trying to teach them. He's trying to train them. You see it in other places. He's teaching. He's healing people. You see, if, you were, if you or I were in his situation, we'd probably be like, these people just keep coming. All they want to do is use me. They just want me to fix their problems. They just want entertainment. They didn't have cable TV then, so they just want to see some show. And these people come along. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Jesus says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he sees them, he says, you don't have me, he's the shepherd. You don't have me, that's why I'm here. So you'll know me. You see the interactions he has with people and how he interacts differently than most of us would interact. Religious people that he comes into contact with that many of us would be intimidated to talk to because they have it so together on the outside of their lives. And Jesus says, you look great on the outside. Are you dying on the inside? You are. He says to other people, it's because of your faith that you've been healed. He sees their faith. He said, well, that's Jesus. Okay, but we're not talking about Jesus in this passage. We're talking about Paul. Paul's a human just like us. He's got flesh just like us. He sins just like us. He's got struggles just like us. He's got the Holy Spirit. He's got a sensitivity to the opportunities that are before him. So the question for us is, are we sensitive to the opportunities that God places before us? Do you see them? And oftentimes they're obvious, but what happens is we're so focused on us that we miss out on what God's doing. We want our happiness and our stuff and our, all these things. And then we take our eyes off of the mission that God has for us and the opportunities that are before us. And we miss the very work that God wants to do. Oftentimes God does it in difficult circumstances. I had a situation recently. I had a friend who told me I could share this story. He and I had some conflict. We were good friends. And um, he had done some things that were really bothering me, kind of getting under, under my skin. And so we sat down one time, just one-on-one talking. So I'll do with some of my close friends. And I said, listen, when you do this, it's driving me nuts. You're bugging me. It's bother, you know, it hurts my feelings. Would you just stop? Just cut it out. Said, yeah, I'll stop doing that. That's fine. It was a great conversation. Until he kept doing it again. Okay? He did it some more. And then I remember uh, being really bothered by it. Like, jerk, you know, ticked off. I'm mad. And then uh, I decided to pray about it. And I uh, asked the Lord, what do you want me to do? I said, just wait. The Lord reminded me of something my mentor had taught me. The guy who introduced me to Jesus, that attorney that I mentioned at the beginning of the service. He... Uh, he told me that an obnoxious act is a cry for help. That's a statement that just stuck with me. An obnoxious act is a cry for help. When people are doing stuff that's uh, obnoxious, in essence, that bothers you, gets under your skin, whatever, oftentimes they have anything to do with you. 
a pain or hurt that's in their life. So I prayed about it and felt like the Lord told me to tell, go talk to them the next day. I went to talk to them the next day. I said, listen, I've learned that obnoxious acts to cry for help. You're being obnoxious. What do you need? I didn't say it like that. Just kidding. But that was behind what I was saying. The way I remember it, uh, and this is my memory, is I was much more tactful than that. But I was thinking, hey, you said you weren't going to do this. You're still doing this. What's going on here? What, what's going on between us? Ended up, he didn't realize that he was doing it. It didn't have anything to do with me. But what we started talking about was some pain that was going on in his life. To the point where I was, I was moved to tears in our conversation. And I don't cry very often. Not because I try not to cry. It just doesn't happen. And so it, took, it, was, it was, my heart went out to him. God gave me a sensitivity to an opportunity. But if I had just thought, kept thinking, well, if he needs to be nice to me. He needs to be respectful to me. Why he told me he's going to do this. He's not keeping his promise. He's lying to me. And all this stuff about me. That I missed the opportunity. What about you? Do you see it? Some of you probably think of situations maybe that are going on in your life right now just by hearing my situation. Is that the opportunity that God has before you? You're sensitive to the opportunities to pour out your life in the lives of others and ultimately the one who gave you those desires that he wanted you to use your life that when you actually pour your life out you don't think that and he promises that's what he wants you to do he's going to also fulfill the desires he puts in your heart and then you'll have joy. See, there are opportunities all around us. There are opportunities all over our city. We're going to do uh, the Southbridge Serves, as I mentioned. I've got a whole bunch of opportunities here. There's more that are even listed out at the table out there. I will not read all of them to you, but there were some that I wasn't aware of until we decided to do this as a church. And here's why one of the reasons why we do this event. It's not just to impact our city. It's also to impact our church so that you become more aware of the needs that are in our city, the opportunities that are out there. World Relief is one of the, the opportunities. I found out this week there are 2,000 refugees moved to North Carolina every year. And many of these people, they come, all they have is the clothes on their back, and many of them don't even speak English. And what World Relief does, they try to help them make a, a transition into the American culture, into the United States, and they oftentimes bring Christians in that can then share the love of Jesus with them in the process. And so we've got opportunities. You can go and you can help with the organizational stuff with them behind the scenes, or you can have lunch with some of the refugees and put a coat on their back. If you have a coat that you'd like to donate, coats that you don't use around your house, gently used coats, um, you can donate coats. That's one option. Briar Creek Elementary School. We've been building a relationship with them for the past several years. We've got 835 kids, 90 staff members right around the corner from us and a ton of opportunities for us to serve. We're going to do a work project over there. Durham Rescue Mission, um, their donation center. We've got a group of folks, opportunities. You can go sign up and serve there. We've got over 1,000 people every night. 1,000 people didn't have a home last night or sleeping on the streets in our city, in our place where we live. And to get an opportunity, you can go and serve some of those folks. Firemen, uh, my family and I, we've done this a couple times. Kids love getting in the fire truck and all that stuff. And we could take them breakfast, lunch, dinner that day. Here's the real goal with the, the firemen. It's not just to feed them. Um, we want to be there to share Jesus with them. Because you think about, oftentimes we think about firemen. We just think, well, they put out fires. Well, they also show up for situations when there's mental illness involved. Uh, they show up when there's a car accident. Uh, they're there when there's a domestic dispute. They'll show up for um, abuse situations. They see a lot of stuff. You don't think that wears on them? There's a lot of struggles for, for people that are in law enforcement, firemen, uh, EMTs. They see some difficult stuff. You know what they need? They need the peace of Jesus that transcends all understanding. And they see that through us. There's other ones. There's a food drive. There's a neighborhood outreach, a survey. Um, going up, literally walking up to people and uh, knocking on some doors and saying, what do you think the needs are in our community? How can a church meet those needs? Do you have any? We'd like to pray for you. Hope Rain Service Opportunity. We've got people praying all weekend. Um, whatever your gifts are, we've got an opportunity for you. The opportunities are there. Are you sensitive to the opportunities? Paul was. He sees faith. How do you see faith? 
He saw faith. There was something that God was doing in this man's life during this message that he hadn't done in the previous messages the guy listened to. He believed. He wasn't causing problems. He wasn't arguing. But this time he's got faith. And verse 10 says, And Paul called out to him, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and he began to walk. Never walked before in his life. I don't know how old you are, but you get out of bed and it like takes you a couple minutes. This guy just jumps up. He never walked in his life. It's a miracle. And you'd think that people would automatically start praising God. That's not what happens. You know what happens in the next part of the passage? People start praising Paul and Barnabas. They try to worship them. And it'd be very tempting for Paul and Barnabas to be distracted from the very thing that God has for them to take in this, this worship, to take these compliments and believe these things about themselves. But that's not what happens. That's where we see the second characteristic of a world changer. As they have clarity of the mission. See, world changers have a clarity of why they're here, why they exist, what they're doing. They have a clarity of the mission, a laser focus. Pick any world changer that pops into your mind, maybe one you've thought about already in this message. Didn't they have a laser focus on the very thing that God placed them here to do? It can be lots of different things. And for these guys, it's Acts 1.8. For every believer in Jesus Christ, it's Acts 1.8. Be my witnesses. Wait, wait, wait until you have the Holy Spirit to do it. But you be my witnesses. Matthew says it a different way. He says, make disciples. The same thing. Mark, at the end of the Gospel of Mark, says preach the Gospel to all of creation. It's said a lot of different ways. At Southbridge, the way we say it is connecting people to Jesus for life change. What we mean is this, connecting people that are far from God to Jesus Christ so they can have life change. Connecting people that have been burned by the church to Jesus Christ so they can have healing and life change. Uh, connecting people that are in the church and are walking with Jesus since they were five years old so they can take the next step in their faith journey. For some people, that means getting baptized, like we'll do next week. For some people, that means going on the mission field. For other people, it means surrendering another area of their life. For some people, it's a greater understanding of grace. It looks a lot of different ways. It's making disciples. It's being his witness. It's connecting people to Jesus for life change. And these guys, they knew that was the mission. So look at what the circumstances that happened. And remember, these guys have been run out of town, then threatened with death, and now people respond like this. Think about how vulnerable they'd be to this temptation. When the crowd saw that Paul had, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, and Paul and Barnabas didn't speak the Lyconian language, by the way. The gods have come to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Zeus was the chief god over the whole pantheon. Hermes was the communicator on behalf of the gods, the messenger. And so perhaps because Barnabas was more behind the scenes, they assumed that he was calling the shots behind the scenes, and they see Paul out front, and so he's the speaker. He must be Hermes. And here's why they would think this about the false gods that they worship. There was a myth or folklore or a story that was told that a long time ago, Zeus and Hermes had come to this town, to the very valley where Paul is preaching at at this moment. They came disguised as humans, and they were testing people for hospitality. And about a 1,000 people were not hospitable. But there was one old couple that was. And so Zeus and Hermes took that old couple on top of a mountain, showed them the valley, flooded the valley, killed those thousand people, and then gave a a very nice home, a mansion with a gold roof on it, to the old couple. And these people don't want that to happen again. And so they see these guys that are in human form, and they're doing this supernatural thing, and they want stuff. They want Zeus to give them what they want. This isn't even really about Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And then it says, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, he brought bowls with wreaths on it to the city gates because the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And so they don't speak the language. They see people are, you know, all up in there. But when they see the bowls coming in and the wreaths, they know what's going on. And so look at what happens next. 
verse 14. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting. Does that seem like a weird response to you? Well, what are you tearing your clothes off here for, Barnabas? What's going on? What images do you get, by the way, if you try and picture this? Like, I think, I don't, I don't know if you watch professional wrestling. I hope not. I, I did when I was a kid. We'll just say that. And I picture Barnabas like uh, Hulk Hogan. You remember Hulk Hogan? He'd get in a fight, and he'd start to lose, or they'd hit him funny, and all of a sudden, tear his shirt off the next moment, right? I picture Barnabas like four slits and Hulkamania on the front. It's like, you're bringing a bull? Oh, you know, tears their shirt off, and... Or like a two-year-old throwing a fit. They don't know what to do, so they just rip their clothes off. Like, what, what's going on here, Paul and Barnabas? You're tearing your clothes off and then yelling at people. It's kind of out of control. But what's happening is uh, it was a Jewish uh, tradition, culture. It was their way of showing great grief. When people would blaspheme, they would tear their clothes. I don't want to listen to that. I don't want that touching my ears, false things about God. In, in Job chapter 1, Job loses all of his kids in one day in a tragic accident. Can you imagine that? He tears his clothes. His heart's heavy. So these guys respond in a way where they're saying, don't do this. Stop this. They're tearing their clothes to try and say, stop this. They ask a question in the next verse. Why are you doing this? It's not because they're questioning. It's not because they're curious. It's like if you ask somebody a question for you, you're basically saying, stop. Like, what are you doing? You don't care what they're doing. You're telling them to stop. That's what they're saying here. Just cut this out. Now think about Think about their situation. These are guys that are getting run out of town, getting threatened with death, and now finally somebody responds like this. They're preaching the message for their benefit. But then these guys, there's people are saying, we don't worship them. They're like gods. Couldn't you see it being tempting for Paul and Barnabas to say, we know that we're not Zeus and Hermes. Let's just use this as a platform. And, and we'll point people to the living God. They'll, they, but in the meantime, we'll let them say a lot of nice stuff about us. Can't you imagine how tempting that would be? But they don't do that because they're focused on their mission. They're not there for them. They're there to be his witnesses, to connect people to Jesus, not to themselves, not so that they feel better about them, not to build up their own self-esteem. It says, man, why are you doing this? We too are only humans like you. You cut us, we bleed. We go to sleep at night. We struggle with sin. Here's what's different. We're bringing you good news. We have a mission. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things, them, and every other false god that they'll worship. Anything else that will distract them from knowing the true and living God, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You want life? You've got to worship the one who created life. And normally when Paul preaches in the synagogue, he he starts quoting, he'll say things like, and you've, you've heard this in other messages he's preached, uh, you've heard the prophet say, and he'll quote Isaiah, or he'll read one of the Psalms from David. You, you know what Moses said, and he'll read from uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. You know what the Bible says. He doesn't say that to these people, because they don't know that stuff. What he does is he appeals to creation, because everyone knows there's a God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that. We see it just in creation. We see it in rain, we see it in animals, we see it in birth, we see it all over the place. But what happens is we start to worship the creation rather than the creator, And that's what they're doing. And he's saying, you stop, turn from the worthless stuff. That's why we're here. That's what's different about us is we have a a mission. We have a message. And we're going to tell you what it is. It's the good news about the living God. What happens for many of us, we get distracted from the mission. It's one of Satan's primary tools in the life of a believer. to get you distracted from the mission. You know how many people live their lives, and, and they're not bad people, 
But they're born, they hang out for a while, do some nice stuff, and they die. And it never mattered that they were here. Do you know why? They're distracted from the mission. You get distracted by all kinds of different stuff. Me is one of the main things. Self. I, just, I care about me. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I'm not ready to you know, pour my life out yet. I, I just need to work on me. <laughs> yeah, God's the one who says to pour your life out, and he's the one who fulfills the desires that you're trying to fulfill by working on you. Self-help, self-aggrandizement, self-improvement. You pick the self thing. We get focused on us, our family. You know, I just, I'm going to be with my family. So I'm gonna, family's good, but you're missing out on the mission. I'm going to go and I exercise. I've got this hobby. Hobbies aren't bad until they become your focus and then you miss the mission. Satan's tool. You see, with the temptation of Jesus, think about the temptation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, if you've never read it before. He gets three temptations, all trying to distract him from his mission. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. He's been fasting. And Satan says to him, why don't you turn those stones into bread? I'm out here and I have the ability to do that and I haven't eaten. You are trying to get me to focus on me and my weaknesses. And I actually came here to lay my life down for them. Take them up on top of the temple. Throw yourself from the highest point. God will rescue you. In other words, does God care about you, Jesus? Well, what's the mission? For God to love the world that he gave his son. Of course he loves his son. Or the thing with the third temptation. He says, you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all this stuff. In other words, don't go to the cross and I'll still make you a king. But that's the mission. Think about if Jesus had succumbed to any of those temptations. He missed the mission and made no eternal difference. Wouldn't be Lord, wouldn't be Savior, you wouldn't have salvation. We'd have a good story. There was a guy one time and he didn't eat for 40 days. Wow. And... Then he turned stones into bread. Great story. Made no difference. Uh, there was a guy one time, and he ruled the whole world, but there was no cross, and so there's no salvation. He's just a world figure. No difference. I was thinking about that for my own life this week, thinking about for some of your lives. And what do you think people are going to say at your funeral? I may do some of your funerals. I'll to, I promise you people will say nice things. You're a dirtbag. It doesn't matter. People say nice things. That's what happens. Go to a funeral. That's just what happens. So don't worry about if somebody's going to say something bad. No one's going to say anything bad at a funeral. It just doesn't happen. But what are they going to say? What do they say about me? When they think about my life, he liked football. He had lots of people come over his house, and his wife made good meals, and he was a good friend. Okay. What are you? Had a good, whatever your hobby. A great Tar Heel fan. Wolfpack fan. Never missed a game. Great athlete. Really smart. What am I going to say about you? Let me paraphrase most of those things. They wasted their life. Because you focused on things. They weren't bad. You weren't a bad guy. Not a bad lady. It didn't matter. It was temporal stuff. You see, we so miss eternity. What Satan wants to do is get distracted from eternity. Get focused on the temporary stuff. If I just could have a good marriage, if I just had a nice house, just a good job, that's all fine. But what eternal difference are you making? See, we miss eternity. I read a verse that struck me this week. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. And Paul's talking about eternity. And he says this, Eye has not seen or ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. Do you know what he has for you? And what you're doing here makes a difference in how you experience it there. How foolish of us to waste our life here on stuff that's not going to last. Do you know the mission? God has a mission for you. It's the same mission he had for these guys that are turning the world upside down. Nothing special about these guys except they decided to surrender their life and be obedient. I'm going to do what this says regardless of what I want to do, regardless of what the 
Israelite dream was, the American dream was, regardless of what someone else tells me I'm supposed to be doing, I'm going to do what you say. They're surrendered. They're focused on the mission. You have clarity on the mission. Paul continues to preach this message, and then in verse 18, it's like he gets cut off. And even though he's preaching about the living God, it's almost as if he has to still restrain these people from offering sacrifices to him. And then that makes verse 19 and 20 even more strange. Because in verses 19 and 20, the very people who are worshiping Paul and Barnabas try to kill him. It's almost like the situation where Jesus is coming in uh, on triumphal entry and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, less than a week later, crucify him. What happened here? But what we end up seeing is that after they try to kill Paul, he gets up and continues on with the mission, which takes us to the third characteristic. Third characteristic of world changers is they've got the courage to continue. They've got the courage to continue on with the very mission that God's given them. And so we see with Paul, look at the passage here. Verse 19, what ends up happening is there's some guys that come from Antioch. It says, then some Jews came from Antioch. That's about 100 miles away. And Iconium, that's the last two places he's been. 20 miles away, Iconium. 100 miles away, Antioch. These people are coming into this town. We don't know if they're coming looking for Paul and Barnabas or if they're just traveling and they find him. But they won this crowd over, the same crowd that was just worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up, went back into the city, same city where they just stoned him. And this is a key verse, easy to read over. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So think about what happened here. This is all easy to read over. Paul gets stoned. Yeah, but he gets back up and he's fine. No, 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 wait. He got stoned. That's big deal. Anybody here ever been stoned before? I'm not talking about like drugs, okay? I'm talking, get that out of your mind when I say that question. Ever had people throw rocks at you with the intention of hurting you? Anybody, anybody have that situation? I have had that situation before, um, just so you, you know. I'm being serious, by the way. Uh, one time, when I was an elementary school kid, I was playing out in my backyard, and we lived next door to a restaurant bar. I don't know what it was. that was behind our house, and this parking lot came right up to our backyard. I'm playing with my dog out there. There's some older kids that are out there, and they're throwing rocks, and uh, they start throwing rocks at, at, towards my dog, and so they throw this one rock up, and I go to push my dog out of, the, out of the way, and I look up in the air, and I see this. It was like a piece of the pavement at the edge of a parking lot, and I don't remember what happened after that. I, I just don't remember them taking off. I don't remember getting hit with a rock, but the rock hit me in the head. I do remember walking into the kitchen not long after that, and my mom was making dinner. She was making spaghetti and meatballs that night, for those of you who are interested. Because that was my question. Mom, what's for dinner? And then she said that I took my hat off, and blood just started gushing down my head. So you can imagine uh, what my mom did at that moment. Ah! You know, she freaked out, and call my dad in the house. My dad goes looking for those two kids. doesn't find them. They take me to the hospital, shave this little bald spot on the top of my head. Look like a 60-year-old you know, man. I got five, but at any rate, they put these stitches or staples on top of my head, wrap my head in a bandage. I've got like, it looks like I'm walking around with a cast on my head. Fool, but at any rate. One stone. That was one. Think about Paul here. Intentionally, with violent intent, they're throwing stones at him. We don't know if he went unconscious when the first one hit him in the head. We don't know if he was able to stay conscious, and maybe he thought about Stephen when he gave approval for that. The stones keep flying at him. Broken bones, flesh being torn off of his face, you know, disfigured, maybe a permanent limp. I don't know. But it's bad. Bad enough that they think that he's dead. Now, they don't have the medical technology that we have. That means he's unconscious. He's not breathing. They drag his limp body outside the city, leave him there. 
thinking he's dead. The disciples, probably people that he had an impact in their lives, perhaps this guy, they come out and they huddle around him. We don't know if they put towels on him or what happens, but he revives. He comes back, and then it says he walks back into the same city. Can you imagine? He probably had a limp. Can you imagine Paul walking back into the city, and you just saw him get stoned, you thought, to death? Hey, man, what do you do at that moment? But then the next verse is the one that gets me. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Derby's 40 miles away. They go on a 40-mile walk the next day? What would you do? I'm going to tell you what I would do, if it were me. And if, by God's grace, I was going to still continue with the mission, I'd at least say this. God, um, got ran out of one city. The next city they want to kill me. This city they tried to kill me. Can I have a week off? Where was Barnabas when I was being stoned? Okay? Because he didn't get stoned. You notice that? That's an observation of the text there. Uh, he was hiding underneath the couch, God. Send him to the next city. Let him take that one. I need a break. More likely, what many of us would do, is say, that's enough. God, I've done enough for you. And I'm done. I went to that city. I'm doing this for their benefit. And this is how they're acting. And then I go to the next place and they want to kill. And then this, this, this is, I mean, this is more than most people ever have to do. I'm done. Enough is enough. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe it's not because you're getting beat because of your faith, but maybe it's, you're in a difficult relationship and you say, I'm, just, I'm done with that relationship, God. You got that. You deal with it. I'm done. Or physical needs. Some of you have kids with special needs. You ever wake up in the morning and just think, I, I can't do another day. Ever, your job's tough. You ever fantasize, if I just had a different one, then, then like, there would be no problems, right? Marriage, if I just had a different one, there would be no problems. I think we're all smart enough to know that's not true, but in those moments, sometimes we think those things. So how does Paul continue? See, Paul knows this stuff too. Do you know what he says later in Acts chapter 20, verse 23? He says that the Spirit speaks to him in every city he goes to. He doesn't give him specific details, but he says, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. He knows what it's like to wake up in the morning and think, I can't do this. So how does he do it? Verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. And there's another place in 2 Corinthians where he says, these light and temporary momentary afflictions that are on me. And here's what he's saying. Not that today I can make it through today. It's just one life. 40 years, 60 years, 80 years. It can only last so long. Anything you put before me, I can handle that for that amount of time. Because it's making a difference for eternity. And even if I fail, you say in my weaknesses, you're made known. So let's go. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. Focus on the mission. Here's the task. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace, of making disciples, of being witnesses, of connecting people to Jesus for life change. So can you do it? Yeah, you can do it. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit, when you trust in him, that if you do the very things that he says, simple commands, pour your life out. Give me the whole thing. It's, we don't have a, there's not a mental issue with trying to figure out what he means with that. It's just surrendering. And so how do we continue to surrender? Well, we cling to his promises, and I'll be with you always. And it happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and when you fail, that's when I'll be made known. That's when my grace will be most seen through you, is when you fail. But fail obeying. Fail trying. Fail moving forward with the very mission. So do you have clarity of the mission? The sensitivity of the opportunities. Opportunities are all around us. We're going to give you some and dismiss you in just a minute. Out in the lobby, go to a table, sign up for Southbridge Service. But there's missions every, there's opportunities every day. 
with coworkers and friends and, and all kinds of relationships. So you have the courage to continue on with that. Are you a world changer? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd use us to impact other people's lives, that their eternity would be different as a result of things that they see in us, things that they hear from us, ways that we respond in situations. God, we are weak vessels. We know you describe us in the scriptures as jars of clay. And we're just jars of clay, but you've given us this message like Paul and Barnabas. Hey, we're just men, we're just women, just like everybody else. But we've got this message. And that's the mission. And Father, I pray you keep us focused on your mission. You can make us sensitive to all the opportunities you have before us. And God, you'd use us. And Father, I pray you'd make us world changers. And and God, I pray for those. They can't be world changers because you haven't changed their world yet. If there are those that need to know your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior, I pray that they would trust your son, Jesus, right in this moment. And if you need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior right now, you can just move from belief that he just died for your sins to faith, that you place your faith, your trust on him, you're banking your life on him. And you can do that right now. Just acknowledge your sin before him and ask Jesus to be your Savior. If you want to talk to someone about that, we have a response team that will be out in the hallway after the service. Just a table right to your left when you walk out of Theater 9, right to your right when you walk out of Theater 14. And the people there with the little yellow tags say response team if you want to talk to them. If you have any prayer need, they'd be there. they'll be there for you. Father, I pray for those of us that are, that are believers. I pray you wouldn't let us get distracted from the very mission that you have for us. Don't let us get distracted by all kinds of things that can be good things that aren't ultimately your mission for us. God, use us, please, for your glory. Give us the courage to continue to walk with you, to continue to live on mission for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.